Hello and welcome back. Today I'll be sharing the final episode of this season of Atlantic Baptist Stories. You'll be hearing from a conversation I had with Reverend Dr. Anna Robbins, who serves as President of Acadia Divinity College, Dean of Theology at Acadia University, and Director of the Andrew D. McRae Center for Christian Faith and Culture. Dr. Robbins shares about her own journey into ministry, the perspective her time in the UK gave her on the Atlantic Baptist world, and the challenges she sees Baptist churches today are called to embrace. My name is Anna Robbins, and my church membership is at Wolfville Baptist Church, and my current church attendance is at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Hammonds Plains. I, uh, I grew up in the city center in St. John, New Brunswick. My parents were separated at that time when I was real little. And uh, my mother, she grew up in the Presbyterian church. So she had a faith that was kind of in the background. So, so we talked about God and those sorts of things at home sometimes. And, you know, we were taught to say prayers as children and so on, but it, it wasn't really until some neighbors who lived around the corner, they used to stop by um, our group of kids playing out all the time and say, you children need to come to Sunday school here, come along to Sunday school. And we used to ignore them and ignore them until one day my sister and I just said, Sounds interesting. And we went up and we asked our mom if we could go to Sunday school. And she said yes. And so we found our way there. Uh, We were quite resourceful, independent children. (laughs) And we found our way there to a local Baptist church. And I came to faith there, grew up there. They nurtured me in my discipleship. And they were the ones who sent both myself and my husband um, uh, into ministry, affirmed our call for ministry later on was Central Baptist Church in St. John, and uh, I was there from probably age five or six until our first full-time ministry, which would have been in the mid-90s. In those days, it was a flagship church of the convention. It was a busy church, a full church. Growing up there was exciting for me because it had uh, we had loads of activities. The Sunday school was large. There were over 300 kids in the Sunday school. Um, they promoted camp at Camp Tilakadik. So I I grew up avid for Sunday school. Sunday school was probably my main place where I got Bible teaching. uh, And that was a solidly Bible teaching church, which I immensely appreciate uh, now, especially. Uh, But not in a a Bible thumping kind of way. Uh, There was always a real welcome there um, and lots of young people and children and so on. Um, and the people there really just, I felt adopted by the, the church. One of the, one of the greatest things I remember are the, the Christmas pageants, where as kids, it was just so, such a great memory. You know, we would gather and every class would do their, their play. And, um, we used to get these, we'd have hot dogs afterwards, always those boiled hot dogs, you know, <laughs> a bag of Christmas candy. And it was just this old fashioned stuff of like ribbon candy and, bonbons and stuff I haven't even seen probably apart from the farm markets for a long, long time. But, you know, as a kid growing up without much, anything exciting that happened was fun. Um, and, and certainly as a uh, growing up in a disadvantaged family, there, there were times when the church would leave grocery boxes at the foot of the stairs and that sort of thing um, helped at Christmas time. We were aware of that acceptance and that love. And we grew up with that. You know, when I first started attending church services, well, actually, let me go back a little bit, because before church services, I was baptized. So our minister was Eric Davidson, and he was the one who baptized me. And that was probably um, my first connection, really, with a clergy person in that way. 
Um, we all the kids loved him because he had these green peppermints always in his pocket, and he would shake your hand and give you a green peppermint, and uh, and people would just go to see him to say hello just to get a green peppermint. We were easy to please in those days, weren't we? <laughs> Uh, so he did our baptismal classes with us. Um, it was our pioneer teacher, though. There were some kids in the class who were church kids. We, I, don't, I didn't consider us as church kids because we weren't there as a family. We were there as like outreach <laughs> targets or something. I don't know. But we were the outreach kids. And then there were like the church kids whose families went there. And there were a couple of them talking about getting baptized. And I asked about what this was. And uh, they were kind of explaining it to me. And I, I said, but I believe in Jesus. So I want that. And I went home and said to my mom that I wanted to be baptized. And she said, well, you were baptized because she had us, you know, christened as as babies um, being Presbyterian. And I said, (laughs) this must have been the first sign that I was truly a Baptist. I said, no, no, I mean the right way. (laughs) And I was like nine. Uh, But bless my mom, you know, she she could have just said, oh, forget all that. You're too young. You don't know what you're talking about. But she called the minister and said, Anna says she wants to be baptized. And so what happens? And so we joined the class. So that was probably my first uh, exposure to clergy. And it wasn't something ever entertained for myself at all, really. Later, later in life, I went to university. I went to Carleton and in Ottawa and kind of mucked around at a couple of churches there, but never really got involved heavily. Um, But my husband and I came back to St. John for our first jobs. And we, when we were getting married, we were having the, what is it, premarital counseling, I guess. And we had uh, sort of one, one or two sessions max with the minister at the time, who was um, Jack Willett. And I think it was on the second or third visit, um, the phone rang and he had an emergency to tend to. And he just said to us, come with me. And we didn't know what the heck we were getting ourselves into. And we went with, and that was, it was fascinating. It just seemed really natural. And then after that, I don't think we had any more sessions where we just weren't doing stuff with him. I I often think about that in light of how people sometimes think about clergy today. You know, there's so much of the emphasis has been on um, those who have fallen in some kind of clergy abuse and so on. That just was not my experience. My experience was wholeheartedly of caring, concerned people Probably the greatest glimpse that enabled Peter and I to think about the possibility of ministry for ourselves was getting so heavily involved as lay people in the church. So after we we were graduated from Carleton and we uh, were married and in St. John, we intentionally moved in around the corner from the church and got very, very involved. I was the superintendent of the Sunday school, which is a title that now just makes me laugh because what is that? But there were still even then 200 kids in the Sunday school, even then. Uh, we were on the church council, uh, but the biggest thing was we we ran a, a junior high youth group. We would start by picking up the van, driving around the South End, picking up all these kids from these usually very complex and difficult situations, bringing them all to the church, singing songs, teaching them about Jesus, playing some sports. Um, and then we'd load them all into the van and drive them all back home again. And, and we learned that serving people was costly. Um, we learned that it was messy. We had one, one kid once jumped, wanted to come to youth group so badly. And her mom said no. And she jumped out the window and she turned up at church, just a bloody mess. Literally, literally I'm not, you know, and um, having to take her then to the hospital and, but, but being involved in just the real mess of people's lives um, and recognizing that people who have very little hope in their lives, when they meet Jesus, it, it gives them something huge to hang on to that can be so completely transformative. So I think that was probably our first glimpse that for me, 
um, started to change the way that I understood ministry as kind of this upfront, here I am, I know the Bible and I'll teach it to you. And, and yes, warm pastorally, um, but realizing that ministry really is hard and it's nitty gritty, but it's hugely transformative. It was clear to us that God was probably saying, this is, <laughs> this is where I want to place you, um, is in, in serving the church uh, in a more permanent and full-time way. So we um, spoke to our pastor, uh, who immediately affirmed that, said, we all know this was coming. <laughs> he said, we just hoped it wouldn't come quite so soon, because I, you know, they appreciated the work that we were doing. But he did at that time look at me and say, but Annie, you need to know there's room for only one minister in the family. And that was an unspoken, well, of course, it's my husband. At that time, I had grown up in that church, and I'd not seen anyone speaking from the pulpit unless they were a missionary sharing. And so for me, although I was a leader at my work, I worked for the Red Cross at the time and had a very responsible role there and supervised other people and so on. When it came to church, I I was not used to anything else. So I remember saying back, well, yes, of course, I just want to go to seminary with Peter so that I can learn to be helpful. Guess what? I went to seminary and learned to be helpful in more ways than I had bargained for. And so we were warned that, you know, they said, oh, they're going to, they're going to make you liberal. They will try and teach you that you have a call to, but stand firm and all those kinds of things. And so that's how I was prepared. Having said that, there were some also really tender things like they, there were a number of retired ministers in the congregation, as well as the active pastors, and they held a barbecue for us, and they each took their turn in giving us advice. I, I remember one saying, don't go forward into this unless you you can live your life in a fishbowl. And that was quite a challenging uh, comment. You know, that's how it is. It's un- it unfolded that way. Um, and so we did. We came to Katie Divinity College. <laughs> I didn't find them liberal at all. Uh, I found them quite helpful, but it was in studying scripture then uh, presented in a very faithful way that, you know, I had some profs here say, Anna, you know, you should be open to the idea that you might have a call, that that God might want something more from you. Are you willing to entertain that idea? And so I tried to be open to the scriptures and what they were saying and had very patient profs here, especially, you know, I think about people like Alison Trites, who always had an open door and and would very patiently answer questions about the New Testament, consistently taught in the class about um, the the actual inclusion of women in the ministry of God, until I had to give in. It was clear that God had been calling me from a very young age. I did not understand how that could work out because I was a woman. Uh, But even at this point, I had to realize, well, if God is calling me, I can't sweat that. I have to just keep putting one foot in front of the other and let him work that out. And he did. That church, interestingly, when I finally did uh, surrender to the call of God to ministry, they had to give me, um, it was in those days, a recognition of gifts for ministry, which is, you know, your license more or less. And uh, I knew that was going to be tricky for them. Um, and I could have gone somewhere else. I know some people do that. They'll move churches to, to have that. Um, but they were my people. And so I couldn't see working around them at all. And so I asked them if they would provide me with that. They had already provided it for Peter. I wasn't party to what happened much after that. I'm aware they had several meetings. And I was told that what solved it was in the final meeting. I think it was like probably the third meeting or something. They told me who said this, but it was an older minister, apparently stood up and said, I don't know if God calls women, but we all know that God called Anna. 
And so I suggest we just vote and get this over with. And that's exactly what they did. I was delighted and grateful that they reached that conclusion because for me, it's hugely important that your call is not your call unless it's a call to you from within the congregation, from with the people of God, and they have to acknowledge it. Otherwise, I don't think you have a call. And then, you know, you think about the process and and the different things along the way and you know, sitting in examining counsel in those days was often a hostile experience for women. Um, and again, that just wasn't my experience. And I'm so deeply grateful that it wasn't. There's been a lot of change. Um, you know, there were only certain places where a woman could minister previously. Um, and that's expanded quite a bit. I mean, there are places and regions everybody will know of locally. Uh, where that would not would not have happened in the past, and and certainly now there there's a lot more opportunity, um, and I want to really affirm that and say how good it is. I've seen an openness amongst some leaders to what the Spirit is saying to the church, and uh, wanting to include the whole people of God, which is wonderful. And so I've seen a lot of change. At the same time, I don't see enough change. When I left for the UK. The last Oasis, what was, you know, convention meetings in those days, the last Oasis meeting, they were debating the role of women and whether women could be ordained and so on. And I arrived back in 2012 and almost immediately went to Oasis, the denominational meetings. And what were they discussing? But could women be ministers? (laughs) And I thought, are you kidding me? I was away for 15 years and not a thing has changed. And, and, and it wasn't a full picture because a lot of things had changed. I would say there's been more rapid change recently because even some of the people who were standing on the floor in 2012 uh, would have had a change of mind in recent times, which again, the spirit does the spirit's work. We can't change people's minds. Only the spirit can do that. So while that's positive, there's still so many places where it's just not an open opportunity. And I think that that that's for the detriment of the church, because I look at the moment where we're often told that there's a shortage of ministers for church ministry and with the kinds of gifts that we need for people in ministry. And I think sometimes we're just forgetting that there's a whole generation of women who may not have considered themselves for a call like this and who could very much rise uh, to minister into that need. It's it's a challenge it's a it's a challenging one because it it's it's painful and hurtful for women who come through who feel called they come through their studies and then they encounter pushback in the church and that's really difficult for me in the position I'm in now and have been for some time I've been really concerned to encourage women in their ministry call but I find sometimes women arrive at seminary not understanding how much pushback they will get and they think that you know, I'm some kind of raving feminist or something, and they don't want all that. And they're just fine. And it's not until they get out into the church that they recognize, whoa, this is this is not what I expected to encounter or to experience. I mean, you know, the history of the Baptists in Atlantic Canada is the same as the, the history of the church in the Western world. It's a white story. It's a white story that's been told. The history, I think, of the church and First Nations in this part of the world has been just when I say the church, I mean Baptists, because obviously the Catholic Church has had a different relationship with First Nations and Anglicans and United and so on. Our relationship as Baptists has really been one of um, solitudes. And that reflects, I think, the larger culture of which we are part. So when I was at ADC and ministered in the valley and you drove up and down the, the highway here, you'd pass by how many Indigenous communities and never even knew they were there. In the wider culture now, we have we have signs that post where these communities are. 
Um, so you cannot ignore communities in the same way that perhaps we had been um, doing before. And I think with the TRC, some of us have been really awakened to the need to make relationships with First Nations people a priority to learn to walk better, if, if not well, from the outset with Indigenous folks. And, um, and so I think it's crucial that we do that because otherwise what, what we've been is a colonized church. In other words, we're, we're the church of the settlers who have come. And I, I think the church has wanted people to know Jesus, but, but has not always understood that the package we present is Jesus in a white box. And we have to understand that we've done that and we continue to do that. And it's not until we are willing to kind of lay that down and, and say to the Lord first, you know, we, we accept that we have done this and that this has been to the detriment of, of people who don't look like, like us. How, how do we help us, help us by your spirit to do differently and to do better? And so I've seen a lot of churches take up that challenge. And I would say in recent days, our denomination has taken up that challenge. Um, there's a lot to do. We're only on beginning steps, even as the seminary, well, as we've had a partnership with Nates, an Indigenous learning community that is helped us learn about what decolonization might look like in theological education. We're still really only at the the beginning edge of that, or, you know, we're, we're playing around on the tip of the iceberg where there's a whole lot more work to be done. I think it explains in part the decline of the church because it was so hooked to the wagon of culture, of white culture in particular. And I, I'm not saying white because, oh, now white people are all, you know, um, oppressive and so on. It just happens to be how it was. Um, the majority culture was white. Um, we did things in a particular way. The church was hitched very much to that culture. And when we have to say, well, where, where do other cultures fit in? We're not always sure what to do. There's a lot of instability then, and people are sometimes afraid. But I think those who have embraced the challenge find uh, new life in their church. And I think going forward, that's the only way we will find new life in our churches is to be have that openness to the spirit, to all the people of God. What does it look like to embrace all of our human cultures and not just one particular culture? Ministry together with people of color um, has been a story of marginalization. In, in the beginning, they could not worship with uh, in the white churches. They weren't welcome there. We, they weren't welcome into positions of leadership. And so uh, out of that emerged the, the black majority churches and the, and the African United Baptist Association. And so that legacy continues to today in the, in the, in the fact that we have this separation. Um, how do we overcome that? Well, again, we have to own the fact of our colonization um, of, of the gospel and be open to other ways of seeing and being and doing and, and to own our past neglect and oppression and racism. And, and, it's, and, and we have to be able to name and say those things because they're things that Jesus talked about. Jesus was about justice and Jesus was about including everyone in the call to the gospel. And so uh, I think we're just, again, we're just starting to learn what that looks like, but the change that it's going to require amongst us is going to be hugely transformative. It's not something you can just pick around the edges at. It's going to demand um, wholehearted change. For, for me, it's, it's um, I'm worshiping at, uh, Emmanuel Baptist Church now where uh, Leonard Anderson ministers um, amongst others. I just felt the need for a black formation for a while <laughs> or a non-white formation or just, you know, hearing things from a different perspective and a different culture and, um, and, and seeing a different priority. We have only ever had 
two people of color on the faculty to represent that, you know, constituency. And we had no one once Lionel Mariah retired, we had no one. And when Black Lives Matter emerged and, and the, just the urgency of the matter was so clear, you couldn't avoid it anymore. I knew we had to do something. And so I uh, was delighted that, that God brought Reverend Anderson to us and for, the first, for a time like this. <laughs> and so we're working on uh, some projects to increase that presence amongst us, but also um, to increase the support uh, available to, uh, to students from the African United Baptist background. Will, there, will it lead to more students uh, of, of color and of diversity amongst us? I hope so. I mean, in our partnership with Nate's, same thing. We hope that that leads to um, a reflection of, again, the whole people of God amongst us. And that's something that, that we as a faculty are continuing to work towards and to work on and to support. But it's one thing, it's one thing to uh, assent to it intellectually, and it's another thing to make it happen. Travel is brilliant if you can get out of the like, resorts. If you have money to travel, go on mission and learn. And we don't go on mission to help. We go on mission to learn and then to help our congregation when we come back. It's when we get out of our own cultural water and swim in some other water. It's only then that you can see, you know, that, that there's a different way of being. So if there are people in churches sometimes and leaders often say, oh, well, they're stuck in their ways or whatever. I, I think that they are actually not able to know that they are or to see that they are until they get lifted somehow out of that context and into another one to be able to reflect back in. Um, certainly living in the UK for as long as we did um, completely transformed the way that we saw church here uh, because we lived for the first few years in Wales. We ministered in the churches there while I was studying um, they were mostly smaller churches. There were a few larger churches. My husband ministered uh, full-time at um, a church that sat 1,200 people. And on a good day, you might have 80 on a good day. And there were some times in the winter where there might be 12 in a church that sat 1,200. In the little chapels where we preached, we went back five years later, and there were none left. And that did not shock me. What shocked me was that the big town churches were also closed in five years. Some of them went from thriving to closed and you could see it coming on the horizon to actually experience. It was phenomenal. And so when we came back to Canada, you know, we first, we had, we also had an experience in, in England um, and we're there for a long time. We, we were part of a traditional church that actually has ties with the Atlantic Baptists, much more traditional church than most in the London area for a Baptist church. Um, and we could, again, we watched, you know, we watched what was happening and, and uh, resistance to change in some ways, a creative congregation, but a resistance to change. And, you know, one year, I think Peter did, I don't know, and over our time there, we were there, I don't, can't remember how long almost 10 years, he must have done, I don't know how many funerals, many, many, many funerals. And the majority of the leaders died in that time uh, from the church and just decimated the church. And so we come back to Atlantic Canada and we see exactly the same patterns at play just a few years behind. And the situation of decline that we're in now, I, well, people will remember I spoke, I was invited to speak at Oasis. I was glad very grateful for the honor of doing that. Uh, but I felt very compelled to say, folks, we have five years if we have that. 
This is what's coming. We watched it unfold in front of our eyes. The same thing, the same thing is happening here. And so it doesn't mean that every church is going to close. I'm not, I'm not that uh, negative or pessimistic at all, but it does mean that the churches that will survive are the ones who embrace the challenge. The ones who ignore the challenge, there's no way. Yeah, super grateful for, for the perspective of, of it living in a different place, seeing things in a different way, but also being in a place where, yeah, where the, just, just new ideas were in the air all the time. And you always had the opportunity to be able to engage with them and to figure out which ones were lasting influences, which ones were passing, which, which things do we really need to pay attention to, which ones can we just forget for now? Yeah, so over there, yes, they also sent me as a British a delegate to the Baptist World Alliance. That was my first um, involvement with the BWA. It was David Coffey, uh, who some people will know, a British Baptist leader, um, who chose me and another younger leader to be the Baptist delegates for them uh, to the Baptist World Alliance, which meant because we were the official delegates, you know, we had our way paid and so on. And, and it was a five-year stint and we got to go to really interesting places in the world. I think it was at the first one I went to, the first one was in Birmingham. The second one was in Mexico. I met Gary Nelson in Birmingham. Gary Nelson, you know, often called the Canadian Baptist Pope. And then we met up again in Mexico. And, and he said to me, we were sitting down having a coffee or something. I remember him saying to me, now, Anna, you need to come back to Canada. We need you in Canada. And I said, now, wait a minute, Gary, look around. I said, who's here from the Canadian Baptists? And he pointed out who they were. And they were both white men in their 70s. And, and I said, Gary, if I went back to Canada, I wouldn't be here. And I meant here in Mexico at the BWA. And he looked at me and said, you know what? You're right. We got to do something about that. <laughs> so that highlights all kinds of things that I could go off on tangents about. One, one, which is I would have had nowhere near as much opportunity if I hadn't left. I don't say that as an indictment so much on, on this family that I love. But just as an encouragement to say, who are we missing? Encouraging in leadership, uh, because once we get there, we like to we like to kind of keep those opportunities for ourselves. Sometimes it was a marvelous opportunity to be involved in the Baptist World Alliance because I got to meet people from around the world and see what God is doing in different places and what challenges. What are the different kinds of challenges other people have? And you realize. You know, for all the challenges we have here, we have so much privilege, so much privilege, so much opportunity, um, and it's really incumbent upon us to make the most of it. We are not Christians alone, but we are Christians worldwide. We're not Baptists alone, but we're Baptists worldwide, and uh, it's crucial to get a sense of what God is doing elsewhere if you're going to make any sense of your ministry where you are. I don't know why everybody isn't a Baptist. (laughs) Because, you know, and one thing I'm really grateful for is you could have been stuck in any denomination at this point in history, but this is a really good time to be a Baptist. I wish Baptists recognized that because Baptists value all the right things, the things that are biblical about being a Christian and that also make sense in the world today, if we could just get a hold of that. So I'm a Baptist. I grew up, of course, in the Baptist church. Um, but I'm a Baptist by conviction. There's no question. Um, because I taught previously in a non-denominational school, I had exposure to, you know, the wide gamut of different evangelical expressions. But Baptists, first of all, hold to the Lordship of Christ. Now you could say, well, any Christian holds to the Lordship of Christ. Yeah, but they don't mean it in the same way Baptists do. Baptists mean that nobody else can tell us what to do, darn it. And that's been in some ways to our detriment. 
But at the same time, it means that when we sit in church on Sunday, we, we answer to the Lord only. We don't answer to the state. We don't answer to the mayor. We don't answer to, you know, we answer to Jesus himself. And so there's a, there's a certain, um, if, if you talk about a people of freedom, that's who we are because we believe they're, therefore, because Jesus is Lord, no one else can dictate how we are to believe and how we are to worship, which means that even if the world excludes the, the whole people of God, we don't have to, you know, so even if the world is racist, we don't, we, we're not racist because Jesus tells us how to live a different way. So the Lordship of Christ permeates everything else that we do. We, we believe that we don't have intermediaries between ourselves and God. We believe that we are competent to stand before the throne of God ourselves. And we don't, you know, we act as priests to one another. There's no one appointed to be that. And it's in places where, you know, ministers have been upheld as some sort of guru or something where there's been difficulty, I would say. I mean, the most obvious one, the centrality of scripture. We had, you know, that's, that's what we agree on. When we differ, we have to at least say, okay, um, we don't have to always agree on the same interpretation of scripture, but we agree on the seriousness with which we will treat scripture and the degree to which it will form uh, and inform our minds and our decisions on things. The congregational government. We can only do that because we believe in the Lordship of Christ. And we forget that. We think congregational government is leading by um, democracy. It's not. The the congregational meeting, it's not a business meeting. It's a congregational meeting. It's where we discern the mind of Christ together as the gathered people of God. It's not getting one over on the other person that you're opposed to. It's about, are we discerning together the mind of Christ? And when we discern locally in a specific context together, the mind of Christ, you can accomplish anything for that community. A separation of church and state, for example, which we often misunderstand as, you know, the state doesn't tell us what to do. It's, it's, it's more about the Lordship of Christ and understanding that, that his will comes first for us. And therefore, there's lots that we can do either for the state or to serve the state or occasionally to challenge the state and be a prophetic voice. So what does it mean to me to be a Baptist? Um, all of those things. And somehow when you're in a room with another Baptist, you just know it. I will say, though, that when I was in London and I visited, when I visited the Baptist College there, as much as I enjoyed it, as much as I loved some of the people there, well, all the people that I knew there, um, I was always so happy to be back home to my college, which was a non-denominational college. It just felt different. And I love the openness. And um, I don't know, ADC to me feels like home. So I, I, I but I don't know if I would feel that if I came from the outside, right? So we always have to watch that as Baptists. I think that we don't become ex- exclusive in our love of Baptist life. And I, and I do love Baptist life. I know many leaders in our church family uh, in, amongst Atlantic Baptists who are absolutely embracing the challenge, absolutely, you know, saying, let's go, we're going to do this thing. And and there's some really, really good things happening. But I also know that there are many churches. Most of our churches in Atlanta, Canada, were planted at a time when you took your horse and buggy where you needed to go, right? So there's a white church on every hill. People drive now to get their groceries in town. They'll drive to get their mail. They will drive to go to school. But we insist on having the church on every hill, (laughs) where we can't afford the building, 
people have moved, the demographics have changed. The way that people express faith, the language they use has changed. Uh, we used to be able to assume that the larger culture shared the same values and the same language around uh, faith and around language about God. And that has changed. And not only through immigration or that sort of thing, much more through just cultural shift um, and, uh, you know, a, a changing view of who God is, disconnection from church life. And so, you know, there are times when I'm frustrated by being a Baptist because I would love to sit down with a group of people and say, let's get out a map. Now let's mark out where churches are really thriving and let's mark out the ones that are not. And let's figure out where we actually need to have churches right on this, on this map. Cause we don't need one on every hill. So what is the challenge? It's, it's all of that. It's, it's recognizing too, that, that in attitude, sometimes again, we've been, we've been, colonial in our attitude as if we have all the answers, right? We know what's good for people. We know we have the truth. And, and, and I don't believe we have the truth. I believe the truth has us. And so I believe that Jesus is absolutely true. Um, but I don't possess that truth. The truth possesses me. And so um, it can be expressed in, in, in ways that make sense to people in the lives that they live and and we don't always see that, I think. Our whole global culture is shifting um, around social media algorithms that are controlled by, I believe, nefarious forces who want to see particular ends and so on, in addition to a consumer uh, mentality. So, you know, what comes out of all of that? The challenge, to put it positively, I would say, is to learn how to share Jesus as good news in any culture including our own, which is constantly changing. If future generations were actually going to be listening to this, I either want to say to them one of two things. No, I think there's maybe only one thing. If, if, if future generations are listening to this and the work is thriving, I'm sorry we couldn't have done more. If future generations are listening to this and they wonder what the heck happened to the Baptists of Atlantic Canada, and I say this with a broken heart, I'm sorry, because there's more we need to be doing right now, and we're not doing it. And this is a moment of crisis for us, not only as Baptists, but as Christians in this country and in this part of the world. And if we don't stop fighting and sitting in conflict instead of embracing the opportunity of this moment to share the good news of Jesus Christ with everybody, whoever they are and wherever they are, and now with the pandemic, which nobody predicted, really, um, we will emerge from this pandemic into a different world that nobody can quite describe yet. And so the culture has shifted around us so dramatically and so quickly that the churches that have been not willing to engage that cultural transition will find themselves sitting in a different world and they're speaking a different language. And it's that perspective that I believe living in the UK for so long gave me. I was involved in a lot of organizations where, you know, ideas hit the ground first and we were able to reflect on those from a Christian perspective um, in ways that were dynamic and creative and exciting to me. And I guess that's why I'm not pessimistic because um, I love a good challenge. And I don't think that, I don't think there's any cultural shift that Jesus can't be present in. And I've been able to witness some of that. And, and so the creative spirit of God, I think, gives us what we need to be able to respond to cultural shifts and to, and to ride those shifts 
in a way that gives new life and so on. But we have to make sure that we're willing to let go of the things that will not come with us as the world shifts and as we continue to ride that wave in the spirit. Thank you, Dr. Robbins, for speaking with me and sharing your story with the project. You can find the full interviews for all our episodes published at acadiadiv.ca slash ACBAS. The next season of Atlantic Baptist Stories will be sharing interviews from Baptist women ministers. If you know a woman who was ordained between 1988 and 1997 in Atlantic Canada, please let them know they can get in touch with us at akbas at acadiau.ca to learn more about sharing their story. In the meantime, thanks for listening, and I'll see you back next season.